Yeah. Yeah, old school. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear this. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help you things understand. Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. Or what? You thought because you got saved everything was going to be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleep but a drink. Faith without works is dead. Read your Bible. You know what it says. He who don't work, don't eat. Blackers don't get fed. Huh, yeah. Jesus said he who puts his hands to the pile looks back the same ain't fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the switch five minutes and you about ready to quit. I ain't mad at you. I'm just hitting you with the real. <laughs> if you doubt for me, I was still tripping. Now how you think that make you feel? Check this out. Deep game. This here's deep. Huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but you're stuck at trying to reach. Huh? But after him who's able to possess your father by his glory. Struggles might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now the point is this prophesied way back in the day. Quiet, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate.
supervising climate finance and participating in global climate negotiations 40 years on. His work today as an author, teacher, draws on the wisdom gained from his unique experience forging solutions to the climate crisis. And we're definitely going to be getting into his book, Cut Super Climate Pollutants, now. So we're going to be talking about all that. And with all that being said, let me see as I guess with us. Uh, Mr. Miller, are you with <laughs> Yes, I am, Lamont. Thank you so much for hosting me. It's a great honor. Well, no, the honor is mine, sir. You know, you, <laughs> you had so many accolades there, boy. I was trying to get through them. I said, let me leave, let, let me leave some for Mr. Miller himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, right now, as you put it so well, the world is in such a crazy situation. I have to say, I'm just, I'm partly as you are glad to be alive. It's uh, it's quite a set of issues we're facing today. Boy, you could say that again. You know, some friends of mine had a, a song out back in the day. Uh, the group was The Temptations, and they had a song out called A Ball of Confusion. And I know it well. <laughs> yes, yes. And it, and it almost like if you remember the lyrics to that song and you look around what's going on today, you'd be like, wow. Yeah, I'm actually from Detroit, so the Motown sound is very near and dear to me, too. <laughs> okay, well, yes, sir. Well, then you know, you know, you know. So, yeah. uh, Mr. Miller, we're going to jump into to, to your book. I understand it's your, it's your second book, Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now. Um, what What do you mean exactly by... Uh, well, first of all, let's do this for some of our listeners that, that really don't understand all of what pollutants is. Why don't you give us a little bit what exactly what is a pollutant, then you can speak on what's a super pollutant. Sure. So we, uh, my, my two very wonderful co-authors, this uh, is a book written by the three of us. We've known each other for several decades. Um, Derwood Zelke, Stephen Anderson, and myself. And we kind of term super climate pollutants because we wanted to make a distinction from much of what's really talked about, which is just focusing on carbon dioxide or CO2 and the need to reduce fossil fuels, which we completely endorse and talk about. But there are some additional non-CO2 sources of warming or climate pollutants, as we call them. And by calling them pollutants instead of what you mostly hear about is greenhouse gases, right? So carbon dioxide is a gas. And uh, these super climate pollutants include um, some particles, which are not gases. And uh, that's why we, we use a more broader term of pollutants rather than gases. And uh, the key thing here, which we can get into in some detail, I'm not going to turn this into a science lecture. Uh, I sure wouldn't want to do that. Um, but basically is just that these are all sources of warming that can be reduced relatively quickly. And by relatively, we mean in the next 10 to 20 years. And that's a very critical time period because as a number of scientific reports 
including a, a very significant one that just came out a few weeks ago, have, have told us it's really just the next 10 years or so that we still have time to avoid really dangerous levels of warming. And um, we go into the, what ultimately I hope your listeners will agree is an optimistic message. We've heard a lot of gloom and doom, and we're describing what can be done relatively quickly to avoid some of these real disaster scenarios. Well, that leads to the next thing. Why is, why is action now so important when we've known about this problem for decades? Yeah, really good question. So, you know, there's a, in our book we actually provide a little brief. The book is only 79 pages of text. Let me just uh, provide that clear statement up front in case somebody's interested that they shouldn't be too intimidated. Um, but we have a very brief history of, about the science of global warming, which actually, incredibly enough, goes back to the mid-19th century and even includes um, a woman scientist who didn't get much credit. Um, and that's back when we first figured out that carbon dioxide could absorb heat in the atmosphere and the modeling to figure out, well, so on, was done as early as the early uh, 20th century, more than 100 years ago. So we've, we've known about this for a very long time. But it was really only um, kind of starting in the late 80s with some uh, notable testimony from one of our leading scientist advocates um, who gave congressional testimony back in 1988, actually, on a very hot day, conveniently enough, in Washington, um, saying that climate change due to human activities was happening and was going to be very serious. But it did not um, bring about any real um, action by government. So we've had this period now since the early 1990s when we first agreed on an international climate convention, actually back in 1992, signed by, surprisingly enough, George Bush back in Rio. So we've had an awareness, but we didn't really do much. And we came close a couple of times with legislation uh, in Congress back in um, 2008 and nine didn't happen. And now we're being told by scientists in no uncertain terms that if we don't get a move on it, we are in big, big trouble. That we've, We're now reaching a point where we, we could be exceeding what scientists call tipping points, which are really massive irreversible changes like melting of permafrost in the Arctic like the change in the Amazon from being a source of absorbing carbon dioxide to being an emitter of carbon dioxide as we've deforested the Amazon. And these things could be irreversible. They could be compound. And the end result is that while we've been seeing, as you know, Lamont, wildfires in California, smoke of horrific uh, nature, 
causing some of the worst air quality in many parts of the Pacific Northwest. Um, droughts that now have forced the reduction of the uh, Colorado River flow, et cetera, et cetera. There's almost no part of the country. Today, we just had a message from the president about hurricane reaching New England, and we're being told that hurricane intensity and frequency is another likely uh, consequence of warming ocean waters. So let me ask you this real quickly, Alan. What yes. what do you think what why do you think there's such a disconnect between the scientific community and um your everyday working guy or family? Yeah, it's a great question and you know, Lamont, I've I, I tuned into a couple of your previous climate related podcasts. And I think you've you've pushed a little on that question before. (laughs) You're telling on me, Alan? (laughs) Well, no, I want to tell you, I think it's a very good question without a very clear answer. And, you know, those of us like myself and my co-authors who've worked on this for a very long time have our our personal views. You know, I've I've gone to uh, almost 20 of the climate negotiations. I've been to endless meetings of climate scientists. Uh, Lots of really great people work on climate communication. Um, And I guess my personal answer, the best I can give you would be, first, I think it's in the culture of science to be very conservative. So I, I can just briefly recount how when there was a theory that hairsprays were causing ozone depletion. I think you're, I don't think you're as old as I am, but I think you're, you're of a vintage that you may remember this, that um, the, this was a theory. And they sent a bunch of scientists down to Antarctica because they were seeing a decline in ozone there every Antarctic spring. And when the scientists sent up um, very specialized equipment and airplanes to measure chemistry up there, they were pretty sure they had pinpointed that it was indeed these chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons and thus the need to ban them. But they waited to give this uh, conclusion because as one of the leading scientists later said in a documentary, what if we were wrong? No one would ever believe us again. So I think that there's this inherent conservatism among a lot of scientists and in the way they communicate. And when you, for example, look at this most recent climate report, the one that got a lot of media attention just a few weeks ago, I would caution anyone who is brave enough to, to look it up. It's, it's a report of several thousand pages that is written in language for scientists so that it, every other sentence is qualified by a parenthetical confidence, medium confidence. I mean, this, 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 this is not calculated to, to be immediately acted upon. So that would be one thing. And then the other really key point, and I don't know that you've talked about it as much in your previous um, discussion of climate change, but there's no question the fossil fuel industry 
which understandably felt very threatened and uh, which includes some very large and very well-funded companies spent a lot of money and a lot of effort um, suggesting that the science was uncertain and that doing anything about it would be damaging to the economy. And those were some pretty powerful uh, and influential actors. And I think sound like, um, sound like you're finna talk about those politicians. They used to be politicians, <laughs> but now they're politicians. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm. I won't. Uh, I won't. You know. I wanted to stick to kind of what can say with some factual certainty, but <laughs> okay. with you. But I know you. You're very good at asking people's opinions on things, and so I'll do my best, oh, Lamont. Absolutely. I'll do my best. Sure. You know, from a layman's terms, um, you know, what I really noticed about climate change, and I talk to my friends about it all the time, uh, when we were much younger, we pretty much knew what the seasons were without having anyone to tell us. You know, we knew when school was going to be out, when school was just getting ready to start just by the weather itself. You know, sure. um, I, I've I've been to Alaska. I, I've driven my boat in the Colorado River when it was actually water. You know, you know I've done those things. You know, I fish quite a bit, and I've also noticed um, the quality of fish has changed substantially uh, in the ocean. And I understand that the, the temperatures are changing, and so just from from an everyday guy just looking and paying attention to what's going on and uh, referencing times when it was a little bit different climate-wise, you know, now you pretty much, from where I live, you don't even know how to dress in the morning when you leave. You don't know whether to dress warm or cold because you don't know what time, I mean, what the temperature is going to be later on in the day. And I know all right. that goes back to what we're talking about. Well, you're absolutely right. And the whole notion of what is climate, I think, is, you know, it's it's um it combines so many different things, and we're seeing the changes at multiple, you know, in multiple factors all at once. And just, if I could, I, I, I by coincidence, I was just up in Alaska. Uh, I spent a couple weeks up there this summer, and in fact, I was interacting quite a bit with some naturalists up there, and witnessed glaciers that were calving. And I visited a salmon hatchery, so I know you were a fisherman. I heard you talking about that, right? Yes. And I fished the um, Kenai and did the halibut fishing there. I, I did them both. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, 30, actually more than 30 years ago, I went up with friends. One of my co-authors, Stephen Anderson, organized a trip for us above the Arctic Circle. We went on the Noatak River, uh, way, way up there. And what I saw, however, this summer when I went to the fish hatchery, they told me they've had to uh, completely change the uh, areas in which they can fish different salmon species. That uh, changes in the ocean water have really affected where commercial fisheries are. And it's a really big deal for commercial fishermen because I didn't, I'm not a fisherman, so I didn't know some of what you might know. But it's very regulated up there, and you get a permit that's specific to a, an area. So, yeah. you know, if the, if the salmon are not where you, your permit is, 
your your boat has suddenly been devalued. And it's, it's, kind, uh, it's kind it's kind of misleading too, Alan, too, because when you when you leave it from here to go salmon fishing, they don't really they don't really really just tell you you can only entitled to one of each species. <laughs> uh huh. You go there with the impression that oh man, I'm gonna go catch a whole bunch of salmon, but it's not really like that. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, people still are going up there and. There's quite an industry and tourism and everything that's around yes. around yes. it, and um, you know there it's spectacular. And uh, we we saw just a small number of glaciers. There's several. I didn't realize there are several thousand glaciers in Alaska, and almost all of them are melting. Almost all of them, and it's. You know they're they're pretty massive. It's not like they're going to disappear in five years or ten years. But um, you know I think about my I have a daughter who's 28, and um, you know I'm I'm 71. I think if she goes up there when she's my age, she's going to see a very different place, and it's going to be a very different um, ecology. Um, it's going to very hard to describe just everything that's changing all at once, just as you were saying, Lamont. Those some beautiful blue glaciers up there, too. Oh, oh goodness. I, I would have to say, anyone who might be thinking about it, go soon. <laughs> <laughs> we say, go soon. Huh? <laughs> go, go, <laughs> go soon, yeah, go soon. But there are, there, those glaciers are spectacular, and as, as you said, the blue of the water that's frozen in them as it, oh, wow, it's it's quite a sight. Yep, it is. That's the only place I know you can go and see bullwinkles walking around like they're a common dog. <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah. were very pleased. We we saw bears, we saw bull, we saw moose, mountain goats. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I was calling bullwinkles, the mooses. They're everywhere. Oh, yeah, yep. They are a sight to behold, too. Yeah. So, so back on our climate thing, Alan. Uh, why were you saying that um, reducing the CO two uh, emissions, you know, uh, won't affect things for years to come? Yeah, this is the part where um, it gets a little techy, and I'll. However, I think make it, um, try to avoid making it too technical. But first of all, CO2 has a very long time in the atmosphere. So quarter or more of everything that we're emitting today is still going to be in the atmosphere hundreds of years from now, millennia. So we, we need to reduce it. So it's, it's, no, it's not at all saying we shouldn't reduce it and we shouldn't switch to renewable energy. It's just to say that. So let me jump in. Well, I just want to, I'm sorry for interrupting, sure. but I just, oh, my brain, man, gets going. I got to use it while it's working. No, please uh, do, Lamont. We, we can go to the moon, but uh, these these particles that, that you said is in the atmosphere, nobody's came in a way to uh, reduce that and get rid of that? 
Well, we actually, in our book, <laughs> uh, we conclude with three things that need to be done. And the third one, and one that's getting more and more uh, recognition, but frankly is the most controversial, is to focus on ways to take CO2 out of the air way. And the least controversial way is planting trees, right? So we know that trees take up carbon dioxide. That's how they grow. The problem is, as fast as we're planting trees, we're burning them, partly because of deforestation, but also because of wildfires. So just this year, Siberia has had the biggest wildfires in their history, and more trees have burned down in Siberia than have been planted this year. So that's true. It is, a, it is a good thing to do, but it is very difficult to do effectively. And when you plant trees, depending on where they are and what types, they take a while to grow. And then right. once they're fully mature, they don't always, they don't really take up a lot of carbon dioxide. So that's, led us to focus on technologies that is ways to remove and store carbon dioxide. So there's a whole field called uh, carbon capture and sequestration, meaning storage. And the, there, there has been quite a bit of effort and money poured into doing it. And there, there's quite a bit more being proposed in Biden's budget. So it is, they're working at it. And um, there are things that have been tried, like giving prizes. So uh, Richard Branson, for example, put out a big prize for carbon removal. So people are, people are trying and they're working at it, but there's nothing really commercial um, that, is going to make a big difference yet. And it also may be pretty expensive, at least in its early version. So your point is bringing that up is a really good one. And ultimately, we hope uh, in our book, we say by the middle of the century, by you know, 2050, 2060, maybe that will start to become significant. But right now, and for the next 20, 30 years, it seems very doubtful that it can be commercialized, proven, and scaled up fast enough to really make a difference. You know, at right. the same time, people, people are, in, including in your state of California, there's a lot of tree planting. And there are many cities that are doing it, not just to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but to try to make places like where you live cooler, right? So one of the great things about having trees in cities is that they tend to reduce the urban heat island or, you know, the, the hotter temperature we find in our cities. I don't know if you've been to Phoenix, but Phoenix is often cited as the classic example because it's typically two to three degrees centigrade hotter there than in surrounding areas just because of all the pavement, and uh, uh, dark surfaces that absorb heat. So I've been there. I just haven't been there recently, but I know how high to get in Phoenix and Nevada. 
Well, yeah, both of those are places where they're really looking at some of these ways of trying to, uh, you know, use uh, lighter surfaces, planting vegetation. Um, I don't know if you've seen any buildings that have plants on the roof, green yes. buildings, but that's it's a kind of cool thing to do, and it does work. But, you know, I think we're a long way from putting plants on everybody's rooftop, right? I mean, it would be it does help. <laughs> and um, out your way, they're also using lighter surfaces for some streets now. I don't know if you've seen any, but they've shown that that also can make a difference. I, I think what's kind of scary to me, Alan, as humans, we still haven't learned how to get out of our own way. Yeah, that's a that's a very good way to put it. And um, yes, <laughs> I'm not. I mean, we pl- we're planting trees, you know, to 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 fix the situation. But then you still got these people stuck on the fossil fuels. So I mean, where 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 is the balance? I know that may be outside of your area of expertise, but you're you're making me think. You know, where where is the balance? You know, or is there such a thing as a, as a balance? Yeah, well, and that's why that is such a tough question. And I know you you had a couple of great shows where a couple of the other um, authors in this book series have uh, talked about, you know, some of the ways of organizing communities and the individual actions that people can take. In our book, we our, our optimism comes from saying there are just these few ways, these few super pollutants that can be reduced in the relatively near term, right, in the next 10 to 20 years. And they're not, fortunately, mostly as controversial as some of what you just alluded to, like getting people out of their SUVs or, you know, fortunately we are seeing, um, as President Biden likes to talk about, uh, you know, Ford is announced that their most popular selling truck is coming out an electric model. Yeah. I love it. I've seen it. I love it. Yeah. I, I actually think a lot of companies are ahead of the game here and a lot, some of the investment banks and people, pension funds and the like, you probably saw the story about how Exxon was forced to accept three new board members all of whom have a climate change perspective, and they were elected over the opposition of the company. This was revolutionary. Wow. And this was, yeah, I, was just, this was, I, was, I was just asking myself, how could that happen? Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, well, the, the answer is really kind of interesting. It turned out that a very small investment fund that had like 0.001% of Exxon shares started this initiative. And the reason it was successful is because they were able to get really big pension funds and investment funds on board. And this is a trend that's been happening now just the last two, three years, partly um, through people like Mike Bloomberg, you know, the billionaire class, right? Uh, (laughs) And um, some of these funds, have percentage shares of Exxon. They're not teeny tiny. These these are 
you know, things like BlackRock that have trillions, literally with a T. And yeah, you almost have to repeat it because when I teach, you know, students are, what? You know, billions, they, they know, trillions with a T. And, and so this very small fund was able to appeal to these much larger ones, and they talked to the Exxon management and were not impressed. Exxon management tried all sorts of stall tactics, even uh, called a recess during the vote. They did all these things, spent a whole bunch of money trying to communicate with their shareholders, telling them, you know, we, we don't like these people. But they were three extremely qualified business people. They did, it was very well done. They, they didn't pick just anybody. They found three people with exceptional credentials who also happened to be really well-informed and concerned about climate change. And sure enough, they got these, uh, these three new board members. So I think that's also just indicative of, to come back to your point, Lamont, it's, you know, I think there, there are things happening. It's, it's not just what governments are doing. It isn't what governments are doing is important, but you know, just to come back to one of your other points, which is, what about the, what about this troublesome gap in, between how science communicates, and and what, the rest of us hear and know, and politicians do, well, I just uh, wrote a blog, about or uh, not a blog, but a, I posted a short message online about things that Greta Thunberg has said about climate change and how in a lot of ways I think her impact has been because of how she communicates, right? I mean, she's a teenager. It's not that she's the, you know, she, she's studied and knows a lot. And if you watch, there's a great documentary about her and she's pretty impressive, but let's face it, you know, she doesn't have a PhD. She's not a climate scientist, but the way she communicates in language that all of us can understand, and especially her generation, I think in some ways is having more impact and and uh, influencing young people in ways that the scientific documents, no matter how many thousand pages, how many thousand references, in the same way. I it's, totally it's, can understand. It's, it's quite it's quite remarkable. Well, it's, it's almost like the pie. It's almost like the Pied Piper syndrome. I mean, you you really have to communicate in the form and manner and the language that people are accustomed to be communicated in. If you speak to them over the head, you know they're not hearing nothing you say. You know, if the same as in the music industry, if they don't like the beat, they're not gonna listen to the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I went myself for almost 20 years to climate negotiations. Uh, it was a great gig, went all over the world, Buenos Aires, Bali, you know, can't complain about it. But until Greta came and spoke at the UN, nobody got the message across the way that she did. And when she really just came and said to this group of adults, shame, shame on you. And I, I think she brought 
a sense of moral outrage through the simplicity and bluntness of her words that has, you know, just really affected people. And, and that's why there is this movement of young people um, that I think is, you know, in some ways it's my greatest source of optimism. You know, I, I've taught at nine universities and I continue uh, to interact with people and they're mostly at college age. And um, it's really been incredible to me how much things have changed in the attitudes that my students have just in the last few years. It's, it's, really, it's really noticeable. Do you feel that's because of society is forcing them to deal with issues um, a little earlier than they had to in generations before? Well, first and foremost, I think it's because the signs of climate change are all around us, right? I mean, True. it's everywhere. You know, it's 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 water shortages in Colorado. It's wildfires in in California. It's terrible air quality from smoke. It's you know, it's hurricanes in Florida and and southern states and moving up the coast. It, you know, they hadn't had a strong hurricane of any kind in New England for 30 years. And did we leave out, so did you leave out earthquakes? I left out earthquakes because I can't associate them with climate change. <laughs> but, oh. I thought, um, hey, well, question, when, the, when there's a severe drought and there's a cracking in the crust, that wouldn't affect the earthquake any kind of way. Listen, I got my, I got my scientist hat on now, Alan. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Lamont, you are on the cutting edge. <laughs> there are, there definitely are scientific investigations to to look into the, those possible connections. But at least so far as I know, um, you know, you you briefly noted at the outset that I'm actually originally a lawyer, so I'll just leave it there. And that's I, I've spent a lot of time among climate scientists, but I'm not a climate scientist. <laughs> right. Anyway, I'm just I'm just a talk show host that don't really know much about anything. So all this is a, all this is a learning experience for me, and and I hope it's well, you beneficial get the, for. Yeah, and I, I hope think it's you get the pulse of a lot of. Yeah, and I think you, I think what impressed me listening to some of your earlier podcasts is just you do kind of get the pulse of a lot of things that are being talked about and and. Uh, how popular culture and the like influences people's thinking. And that's, that's all very relevant. I mean, I think, uh, you know, but just to make a quick connection to popular music, by the way, I was, when I was teaching this past year, I had to do it online. And it, it, my university was closed for face-to-face meetings. Everything was virtual and we used, you know, Zoom platform and, and um, one of the things that I was hearing about was people said, well, you know, the first few minutes of your class, there are always some students coming in late, and it's always a little awkward. So one of the things that this professor told me is it, it's kind of fun to start with music, right? So rather than just have this silence to greet the students coming online, I, I had a graduate assistant, and I said, Find me environmental songs to start 
the class. Here's a bit of music you might not know, Lamont. It turns out that you can now find collections of climate change-related songs. There's, there, are, there are a genre of climate change-related songs, and there are even a few albums of climate change songs. So we, <laughs> so we actually started, and so I, I would just say I think that that might be an indicator, right? I mean, this is the the topic is out there because, as you know, people aren't going to sing about something if nobody's going to understand what they're they're talking about when they sing. So, you know, it's it's not cardio B, but uh, it's it's definitely stuff that has an audience. I'll put it that way. Definitely, and I can understand how it's becoming more more aware to everybody because, like you said, it's it's all around us, and uh, we're forced uh, to to slow up a little bit. I mean, the pandemic made that uh, possible. It made everybody have to slow their road a little bit because everybody was on this survival thing, just living their life, running through their daily activity. But because of this virus, right. everybody had to to. Uh, pump the brakes a little bit and slow down and start looking around and paying attention. And I think during this whole thing, we start to notice a lot of things we've had the tendency to take for granted. Like the weather. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like the weather. I mean, we're just dealing with it, whatever. You know, it doesn't really matter, you know, till till you go to a lake and you have a boat and you find out there's no water in the lake and then you're like, uh <laughs> what yeah. are they doing now? Well, and you know, out in uh, your state, the the impact on farming, right, is in the Central Valley, and on you know the wildfires and how they've affected wineries down in Napa and Sonoma. And um, I like some of those products, and I'm you know reading about how the climate is changing wine growing, and uh, then the water shortages are affecting water-intensive products like almonds. And some farmers I'm always are, complaining. Yeah, I'm always yeah. complaining about the food and like it's just man, seriously, <laughs> make me think about this climate control. Nowadays, the majority of the people they eat to get full. And I asked them, well, how how did the meal taste? How was you? Oh, it's just all right. It's just all right. You know, I mean, they're, they're, because yeah. the water shortage, there's a lack of produce. They're they're growing stuff too fast. They're adding, you know, chemicals, growth stuff. They're doing this, doing that. So the vegetables don't even really taste like they used to, fifteen and twenty years mm-hmm. ago. They just don't, they just don't. They look pretty. I give you that. But they just don't taste good, and because of people's lifestyle, they're so busy eating, they get full. They're not eating because the food tastes good, but they don't realize this vicious circle. You know, the the lack of yep. water, all this stuff is just this vicious circle. So, again, I say we need to hurry up and learn how to get out of our own way. Um, like I read somewhere that you said, else this thing may not be irreversible. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that's why I think this, uh, just to come back to the main message in the book, we we really emphasize how important the next 10 years or so are in giving us the chance to make a difference. And if we can reduce these uh, short-lived climate pollutants that, that don't stay in the atmosphere as long as carbon dioxide and um, 
I didn't actually, you know, maybe, Lamont, I should just say a little more about what these short-lived climate pollutants are because um, we just, we kind of skipped over that a little bit, I realized. But, yeah, go for um, it. Okay, well, um, the one that's actually now starting to get quite a bit of attention is methane. And methane, most of us know better as natural gas. And the thing about it is it is a very potent greenhouse warmer. In fact, when you measure it over a 20-year period, it's about 86 times as potent per molecule as carbon dioxide. So every molecule we can reduce of methane, first of all, it only stays up in the atmosphere for um, for about 12 to 15 years. And secondly, it's it's got such a warm, powerful warming effect. So the good news has been that the oil and gas industry, which is one of several significant sources of it, it's, it's it's from oil and gas pipeline leaks, okay? And the, the big producers of oil and gas are actually supportive of reducing those leaks because if it leaks, they can't sell it. So, so there have actually been um, some regulations published this year after our book by the Biden administration reversing a Trump policy. Trump tried to pretty much kill everything related to climate change. And the Biden administration and the EPA have been able to reissue some uh, regulations for new oil and gas wells. It also turns out that there's a lot of methane that comes from landfills. And that is a source, incredibly enough, that it's primarily from food waste. And this is something that one of the other um, books in this series, Resetting Our Future, I know, I know you had Tim Ward on your show, and uh, one of the other authors has a really wonderful book about um, reducing food waste and, and um, uh, the use of plastic and such in your kitchen. And uh, reducing food waste, again, is something that's really beneficial. And keeping it out of landfills turns out to be a surprisingly large source of methane emissions. And there are a number of other things that we list, and we do give some of the details in the book. And uh, I also want to just briefly promote my co-author, Derwood Zelke's, the head of an organization that has the acronym IGSD. And his group, IGSD.org, has a wonderful website, lots of materials that tell people exactly uh, what to do and document the, the uh, science if you, if you need to to get into the science a little bit more. Um, I'll just briefly mention probably the most controversial but significant factor in, um, in methane emissions, which is meat consumption, and particularly from cow burps. <laughs> and um, if you haven't seen it, Burger King at their website has a wonderful singing commercial about selling the Impossible Burger and Impossible Whopper and how it doesn't release any uh, methane emissions. Um, it turns out that there's a lot of work being done on changing cow feed, particularly, interestingly enough, using forms of seaweed that seem very effective in reducing the uh, methane that comes out of cows. But there's a lot of 
the other point about some of this stuff is that there's multiple benefits. There's health benefits. There's air pollution benefits. So the the reasons for doing this are quite substantial. Uh, there aren't nearly the kind of um, debates that we have about taking people out of uh, their cars and the like to improve their health by eating somewhat less meat. Um, very simple thing to do and um, um, has a lot of other health benefits. Um, is, this, is, this, is this all meat or just certain meats? It's pretty much, well, it's pretty much uh, um, grazed animals or ruminants. So we're talking about cows, lamb, uh, to a lesser extent, for certain people, goat, but not so much. Uh, there's a there's not as clear an impact from chicken, for example. They don't emit methane in the same way. Um, but you know, there's a, just a whole lot of benefit from eating less meat. Now that I'm not a vegetarian, but I will say that um, there are a lot of other you know health and uh, um, farming benefits from from eating closer to the land, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, well, before you, before why you leave it there, explain one thing, because I'm not I'm I'm looking at this, but I don't know what it is. So sure. help me out. What exactly is wet rice? Ah, <laughs> so there are different ways that rice is grown around the world, but most of it, especially in um, some of the most prominent rice growing countries where rice is a basic staple. The rice is grown by putting the plants largely underwater. And that process results in release of large quantities of methane emissions. So not all rice is grown as wet rice, but the, the uh, dominant sources of rice growing around the world, particularly in developing countries where rice is the basic staple. So I, I for example, have visited uh, parts of China, Bangladesh, um, and the rice growing that I saw was always wet rice. So, how, um, do, they how do they measure the emissions from this? Well, believe it or not, scientists are, are able to put uh, um, measure over the relevant fields and the sophistication of those measurements are, let me tell you, getting better and better. They're putting satellites over uh, pipelines now and can tell us how much is leaking out of Russian pipelines. And, uh, but you're right that when you get down to the level of, of individual rice farming, that um, really are measurements that are done from averages measured by agricultural specialists. But we have a fairly good handle on it. But if 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 uh, if you really like, I will send you a couple of documents <laughs> that go into this in in more detail. Again, um, not my expertise, but I can tell you there are expert documents that that go into it. Right, because I mean, there's things the things like you know the wet rice that again uh, I know I've never thought about, and I'm sure. Uh, uh, a lot of my listeners never even thought about 
or even, you know, the uh, different chemicals used in refrigeration and stuff for the air conditioning. I mean, we don't think about that. We think about it when it's not cooling. Um, yeah. Or uh, we don't really think about it well, much cooling. when it spring, springs a leak. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned cooling because it's uh, the other success story and significant short-term that we talk about in some detail um, the technical name for these refrigerants is hydrofluorocarbons, but the simple way to refer to them is just by their acronym, which is HFC. And ironically, HFCs were originally introduced because in contrast with the chemicals they replaced, they didn't damage the ozone layer. So the good news is we put them, we got rid of the stuff that was going to damage the ozone layer which, by the way, were also greenhouse warmers. The, the stuff that um, former President Trump said were the best hairsprays he ever had, and he complained about this, like everything else, to protect the environment. And these HFCs have been used until fairly recently and still are in most of our air conditioners. The problem is they are also, like methane, very potent greenhouse warmers. And in fact, they are about 1,200 times as potent as carbon dioxide on a molecular basis. And they are like methane in the atmosphere when they're leaked out only for a much shorter period than carbon dioxide, again, on the order of, of 12 years or so. Consequently, um, the good news is that an agreement was actually signed, and we, we go into this quite a bit in the book because we think it's a, a success story with a lot of lessons. It was a, an agreement signed in 2016, so just a few years ago, but not, interestingly, under the climate convention that deals directly with climate change. It was signed under something called the Montreal Protocol. I think you made reference to it from my introduction, which was the international agreement to protect the ozone layer, originally signed in 1987, okay? Well, that agreement has been hugely successful. The ozone layer is on the road to recovery. It'll be somewhat longer before it's fully recovered, but it's, it's getting there. And the parties under that agreement have an extraordinary record of success. And what they did was they broke the problem down into these individual different sectors or industries. So just to use the example for methane, they, you know, if you imagine doing this for methane, you'd have a working group on oil and gas, a working group on agriculture emissions, and a group on landfills. And each of them would have experts with appropriate knowledge and a commitment to figuring out how can we reduce methane as quickly as possible from that sector. Well, that's what they did under the Montreal Protocol so successfully that they had this um, community of success. So if we kind of come back to your music industry, Lamont, it would be like saying, I want to do a hit record. I'm going to go to um, 
I'm going to go to Motown, or you know, I'm going to I'm going to go to uh, work with uh, whoever in uh, you know Jackson Brown Studio, and have a community of people who really know what they're doing, and who are committed to adopting what comes out of it. And so back in 2016, even though it was not depleting the ozone layer, they agreed to substantially reduce about 85% the use of these chemicals called HFCs in refrigerators and air conditioning and chillers and mobile air conditioning, all these multiple uses. And as you can imagine, this is pretty complicated to collect all the HFCs from the existing systems worldwide. And it actually, interestingly, comes at a critical time because, incredibly enough, um, 13 air conditioners, roughly 13 air conditioners are sold every second. And that's, that's somewhere in the world, right? And that's because, partly, the world is getting hotter. So you can imagine there are places like India where it's getting bloody hot. People are starting to be able to afford an air conditioner. Well, you can imagine if, if you have left poverty, what are the first things you want to buy? Well, very high on your list is going to be a refrigerator and the cheapest air conditioner you can buy. And the, the challenge is going to be avoiding this massive increase in the use of um, HFCs, which would ironically, of course, require electricity, a lot of which would come from coal-burning power plants. In yeah, we're back in our own way again. You got it, man. You, your face <laughs> has just completely captured this situation. And cooling is probably the ultimate paradox, isn't it, right? Because yeah. as the world gets hotter, we run air conditioning more. And as people get richer, which we hope they will, right, we want people to come out of poverty, they will be able to afford air conditioners in places in India and Africa. And if we can't reduce the power and replace these HFCs, it's, it's really double trouble, man. It's, uh, so the good news is that we did sign this agreement in 2016, and just this year, actually, even since our book was published in, two, in um, excuse me, April, since our book was published, both China and India have expressed, China has ratified this agreement, committed to, to comply with it, and India just in the past couple weeks has announced that they're going to ratify it. So this is another success story. It's, uh, it's a really important model as well, and that's why we go into it in some detail in the book. So I hope that wasn't too long uh, diversion Lamont but I think it's it's you know I, I really did want to give some reason to for optimism and to believe these things not only can be done but in some respects they are being done and that's what we're going to hold on to that part right there 
But, Alan, we're down to the last minute of the show, man. Look, time really flies when you definitely have a great wow. time. You yes, it does. Great information. And I'm going to leave the door open for you so you can come back at any any time. And for those that well, joined us late, uh, the joined us late. The book we were speaking of was "Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now," so it's uh, available uh, worldwide. So go out and support. These are things that could be helpful that you really, really need to know, so we can stop taking these things for granted and we could work towards saving our planet. Um, Alan Miller, well, thank we you so much. You. Thank you, sir. Definitely appreciate you. And again, come back anytime. And again, for those that joined the show lately, no excuse. Ask your mama, ask your daddy, ask the man across the street, the milkman, the gas station attendant. Somebody can tell you where the show can be heard. So there's no excuse. It's available worldwide in about two minutes. You really need to put your ear on this and uh, tell your friends, too. Thank you so much, Alan. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Lamont. This was a lot of. I, I want to tell you, Lamont, it was more. It was much more fun too. <laughs> it was, well, good. It was, good. You know, you got to you got to keep a little levity in it. You know, with serious <laughs> information because people aren't going to digest it any other way because there's too much drama in the world. Well, you you do a great show, Lamont, and I want to just thank you for letting me be on. Uh, thank you so much again, and you're always welcome back, Alan. Thank you. I, I will definitely try to do that. Thank you again. All right. Everyone, we'll see you guys next week, 2.30 PST. Uh, like I said, the show will be available everywhere worldwide in just a moment. You need to put your ear on today's show so we can save this place and be safe. See you guys next week. Lamont Patterson out, and you've been listening to Can a Play a Play? Have a good Weekend, or the rest of the weekend, should I say. Peace. You too, Lamont. (laughs) Bye.